Hi, everyone. Welcome to this edition of Roar Lions Radio. I'm your host, Bill DeFilippo, joined today by my co-host, Matt DeBear. Matt, uh, let's uh, let's put a bow on this Penn State season. Yeah, it's, I think it's deserving of a bow, I think. We'll get into it, but uh, it's uh, it, it was a season, that, that's for sure. Yeah, there was uh, certainly football played uh, to various um, extents, and I don't want to say abilities or competencies or anything like that, but there was a... There was some good, there was some bad, and oh my God, was there some ugly. Uh, we'll get into all that uh, on today's episode of the pod. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, the bowl game, Penn State's loss to Kentucky. Uh, then we're going to get into, again, season of the whole, some of our major takeaways and reasons for optimism and pessimism as we head into uh, the 2019 season. We're going to talk a little bit of recruiting. Uh, we're not doing our uh, one pod for every kid thing, uh, because while y'all may enjoy that, um, imagine something worse than hell, and that's what it's like doing it. Uh, but we're still going to talk a little bit about uh, the kids coming in in Penn State's 2019 recruiting classes, currently ranked 10th nationally. Uh, before we do that, Matt, uh, we haven't spoke since Penn State and Kentucky uh, faced off in the Citrus Bowl. Uh, it was, uh, I'll say it was an exciting game. I mean, it had its ups and downs, certainly. Penn State uh, came up a little bit short, 27-24. to 24. Trace McSorley ended his career 17 for 33, 246 yards. Two scores and an interception. Also had a touchdown on the ground. Uh, Micah Parsons all over the place. Uh, real, as impressive as a performance, I think, as we've seen out of him. Then on the other side, Benny Snell is just that good. Josh Allen is just that good. Um, ultimately, I mean, I try and go into these bowl games. I'm interested in this with you, Matt. I try and go into these bowl games like not getting too into them because unless they're like a big, you know, the Rose Bowl or a playoff game or something like that, you know, they're not that important. Uh, but kind of what was your mindset going in? What was the approach you were trying to take to this one? And uh, as you saw towards the end of the game, did you notice that you were getting uh, maybe a little bit more into it than you expected? I I love college football and I love both games, and it's so I I find myself excited for them. And I was actually down at the game and spent a few days in Orlando um, drinking my way through Epcot and Disney Springs and um, wherever else we ended up over the course of three or four days down there. Um, so the the I guess the part of the excitement for me nowadays comes from getting away for a few days and hanging out with my buddies and, and that sort of thing. But as for the game itself, um, I went in and, and I'll qualify this because bowl games are weird aside outside of the, the, the near six games, the playoff games, those, those major games that you mentioned, Bill, it's really in a lot of cases who wants to be there more. And I didn't get the sense even though Penn state really struggled for much of the game, that that was a factor. Um, it, to me, it felt more like they were making the same mistakes they had made for three months at that point or whatever it, it, it would have been. Um, but I, I had an odd confidence going into the game because I thought Penn state matched up with, with uh, Kentucky really well. Um, I think at one point last year, prior last podcast before uh, the holiday, I refer to them as similar to, to Wisconsin um, just as far as their, their general offensive outlook, they're certainly better on defense, mostly due to the Josh Allen factor. Um, but I was, I was surprised in a sense that, that Penn state struggled for, for three quarters to do anything offensively. Um, and it was just, like I said, a comedy of errors in a lot of ways. There were drop passes, there were missed blocks. There was just, you know, the same sorts of things we, we talked about through the 12 game regular season um, really continued to be a factor um, despite the, the month off and the extra practices and all that um, defensively. I think the, the Robert Windsor suspension really hurt them. Um, we talked a lot, especially in the last month of the season about how well the defensive line as a whole had really come on. And I think he was a, a key part of that and they just don't have the, the depth of talent or experience at tackle to withstand that kind of loss. I thought they played okay in, at that spot, but it just, it totally changed the dynamic of the line when you didn't have Windsor in there. It, you know, it, it limited gross Matos, it limited Simmons, it limited Miller. Um, it just, they just weren't as productive as, as they had been over that last month. But um, it, 
in an odd way, it kind of felt like a like a the perfect bow to put on the season. You know, the special teams factor. Mm-hmm. I, I don't even know if that's worth getting into at this point because it really was. I mean, it was a difference in the game, but we've discussed special teams ad nauseum since since September here. And, you know, it was the punt return, the block kick, the missed field goal, the kick out of bounds, the the error in, in fielding the punt um, by Tompkins early. Just, well, I think we added up to, what, 13 or 17 points that you could really tie directly to, to special teams miscues. That really was the difference in the game. Um, but they still had the chance to win late and the whole fourth down field goal versus going for it decision that... Um, to me, at least, wasn't as cut and dry as as the the fourth and five call against Ohio State that has kind of been compared to, um, given the the time and, and situation. But um, just it, it was a disappointing to end to see Trace go out like that. Especially you know, he played so well in the fourth quarter, and it just it felt like even after they kicked the field goal that they were going to get the ball back, they were going to go down, they were going to score, they were going to win the game, and it would kind of be that that perfect. Um, bookend to, to trace his career and just obviously was, wasn't meant to be, but um, in the grand scheme of things, I guess I don't put a whole lot of stock in it. It's a bowl game that was other than bragging rights and the 10th win factor that we've talked a lot about. Wasn't really a major thing in the grand scheme of things. Um, so I, I, I don't want to put too much thought into it. It was a disappointment. Um, and it, and it, it kind of was a letdown to see Trace end his career that way. But other than that, it was just kind of more of the same for me. Yeah, I, I I try going into bowl games, again, unless it's the Rose Bowl, unless it's a playoff game, unless it's something like that. I try not to get too um, into them. Uh, but then I found myself, you know, Trace gets hurt. He comes back into the game. It's... Uh, for a minute, I was furious because it's, you know, there was the report that he broke his foot. Um, that ended up, you know, thank God not being the case because if they put Trace McSorley back in on a broken foot, like I'd be on here calling for someone to get fired. Um, but he put him back in. He's like doing everything he can to try will will them to a win. And I see myself going like, okay, you know what? I want them to win this one for him. Uh, but I do like that point that you made on how like it felt like the entire season wrapped up into one game with the special teams miscues with the fact that it the offense couldn't get going until Trace basically started dragging them across the finish line i mean i know there were a few drops in the game uh miles sanders who you know god bless him heading into the nfl he didn't have his best performance but at the same time it kind of felt like uh the Fiesta Bowl last year where they could have given Saquon Barkley the ball a whole hell of a lot more, but they also kind of knew what was, they knew what was going to end up happening with him and they didn't want him, you know, risking anything too terribly much when he has a big payday on the horizon, which I'm all for. Uh, But then again, as the game's going on, as it's getting close down the stretch, I noticed myself really, really starting to take a vested interest in this one. Um, I, I put a good amount of stock into what James Franklin said leading up to it about the importance of getting to 10 wins and the importance of being able to establish yourself as one of those schools that can consistently win double-digit games. Because when you're doing that, that's something you can go to, into living rooms and uh, you know high school offices and pitch to recruits and their families and their coaches. And it's just a cycle that keeps going and going and going. And, and then that it just fell flat towards the end. Uh, like you mentioned, I think Robert Windsor's suspension had a huge amount to do with that. Benny Snell, 26 carries, 144 yards, and two scores. I'm willing to bet that if Penn State had its monster space-eating defensive tackle in there, they might have been able to contain him a little bit better. Uh, but I think, just real quick, there are two things I want to touch on. One, uh, you know, just look, Trace going out that'll out with the loss, some thoughts that went through your head in the immediate aftermath of all that stuff, that sort of thing. And then the fourth down call, the fake punt, those kinds of things, just now that you've had a little more than a week to sit back and digest them, how you feel about them. So let's start with that second thing, Matt. Uh, Fourth down, Penn State has the ball. It's fourth and, uh, I'm pulling it up right here, fourth and seven, Kentucky's 14-yard line. 
it feels like the tide has turned into Penn State's favor. James Franklin decides to kick a field goal. Again, take after having about a week to kind of process that, what are your thoughts about it? They, they really haven't changed. Um, and it's I'm going to probably sound like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth here, but in the moment and still now, I, I get why he did it. Um, it's probably not the decision I would have made if I was in his shoes, but the, you know, in the moment and you, you know, you can look at all the analytics and everything like that, but I think there's a, a level of gut, gut instinct that goes into it. And there's what, four plus minutes left. Penn state's got three timeouts. I think they had forced either two or three straight three and outs. Um, they're playing really well. You, you, you have to assume you're getting the ball back. You, you, you know, Kentucky's going to need, probably three, maybe four first downs. Um, you really shut down Benny Snell. You know that's what they're going to do. you got to think you can stop them at some point, get the ball back with enough time for McSorley to to, to give you some options. And it, it opens up, in in my mind, it opens up the, the option where you don't have to have that touchdown. You can extend the game. It opens up the, if Kentucky you know somehow finds themselves in field goal range, you and they make a field goal, you can still score a touchdown to win the game. Um, if there was two minutes left or they were down to a couple of timeouts, if, if the circumstances were different, I think it's a, it's a much more clear-cut call. But um, I don't, to me at least, it was not as, as cut and dry as it was per, perhaps made out to be. The frustrating part was to hear Franklin talk about how their mindset going into the game was to be aggressive. And they were. They, they fake a punt th- two minutes into the game, or, or probably less than that, if I would, were to go back and look at it. Uh, a punt that, if I may add, Kentucky knew was coming like Penn State like held up a gigantic sign that said, we're running a fake leg. I think they kept their defense out there for that play. Like, yeah, and it's yeah. It, the snap, to touch on it real quickly, the snap happened so quickly at the game, it almost looked like Thomas dropped the ball, which kind of threw everything off, which obviously wasn't the case, but... The whole play was just ill-conceived. I think the the idea was was sound. I think you you think you can get a yard in that situation, um, but the execution was just as it was all year on special teams, just horribly lacking. But but back to the for, the fourth down play, just it was kind of counterintuitive. And I, as I've tried to rationalize it in my mind and try and you know how how do you say the the aggressive thing, and and still make that decision? And I think part of it is you these coaches are get into these game situations and an instinct in a sense takes over and James Franklin kicks field goals in that situation. I don't agree with it all the time, but I think that's probably why you get the, the aggressive mindset and that play call. Um, I, like I said, I, I expect him to get the ball back and, and have a chance to at least tie the game um, after kicking that field goal. It just, it was um, disappointing to see, the, the what the three first downs I think Kentucky eked out to essentially run the clock out. See, I, I'm a like I get that I really do, and I think like I, I think I've come to expect that James Franklin in those really big moments, those moments where it can go either way, he's generally going to take the more conservative route. Which you can argue that's a good thing. You can argue that's a bad thing. I tend to be on the. Uh, on the side of none of this matters, so go for broke. Um, but maybe, maybe against Kentucky, like I understand a little bit more. You, you trust your defense. Uh, you know that you're more talented than them. All that stuff. What I can't, what I have a hard time reconciling is basically what you just said. Like coming into this game, James Franklin said, "One, we went into this game wanting to be aggressive." Direct quote. That's what he said about the fake punt. Uh, which, as an aside, um, I've been working on this take since before this game. It was reinforced by this game, and then it was ultra reinforced by Nick Saban running a fake field goal against uh, Clemson's first team defense, in which his lead blocker was his kicker. Uh, you have players who know how to get X yards. Let them get it, and don't trust that the guys who are supposed to punt or kick the football are the ones who. This is not a Penn State thing. It's a broad college football thing. If you think you need to get, or if you know you have X yards in front of you, four, five, six, whatever yards in front of you, and you want to get them, 
leave your offense out there and just leave them to do it and don't hope that smoke and mirrors end up working. But back to this, there was that quote and then there was the quote that he said leading into the game. Uh, this is, again, direct quote on the significance of reaching 10 wins this season. It's very important. It's a benchmark. Some programs are benchmarked on going to bowl games and the next level is 10 win seasons. We have a chance to do that for the third time in a row. And when I hear that, I, I am of the belief that if that is your mindset, you have to be willing to do everything possible to take that. You cannot put it into the hands of the opponent and trust that you're going to be able to, like, despite the fact that they had done that in the last few possessions, you cannot trust that you're going to be able to stop one of the best running backs in the country from, you know, churning out four yards a carry or something like that. So when I hear that and I hear what we want and what James Franklin wants this Penn State program to be, and then I look at the decision to put, again, put the ball in Trace McSorley's hands or take it out of his hands, I'm a little bit uh, displeased on that, especially considering going into that field goal, Jake Pinnegar was 0 for 2 on field goals in the day. It just seemed like such a, like, it seemed like a bigger risk letting him kick it than it would have been letting Trace run it. And I'm like, go back and I think of how everyone's acting now. I think of how much worse it would have been if Jake Pinnegar missed that field goal, which, you know, as we had seen earlier in the day, he wasn't exactly on his A game. And oh boy, that would have been bad. But it again comes back to me as it was on the fourth and five call against Ohio State. The, uh, again, Matt just said a lot of people are comparing it to, and I see that comparison, but I also see why it's a bit off taking the ball out of Trace McSorley's hands and just kind of on that second thing that we wanted to talk about, upset about Trace going out the loss. Like, that's really sad. Like, Trace McSorley, he, in terms of production, I, if you want to say that Kerry Collins was better uh, and what he was able to do uh, in the year that he led Penn State to an undefeated record was better, totally fine with that. In terms of production, Trace McSorley is the best quarterback in Penn State history. And it's really crappy to me and really unfortunate to me that in the two moments this year where he could have really um, established that, one would have been picking up his 31st win, 32nd win as a starter, whatever, in the, uh, in the Kentucky game, one in the game against Ohio State, uh, on the two biggest plays of those games, the ball got taken out of his hands. And to me, that's, again, really, really crappy, especially considering both those games. It just seemed like if the ball was put in his hands and he was told to win the football game, he was going to win it. So I'm really bummed that he went out with a loss. I w More than anyone else, um, the guys who uh, had been there, had been through the trials and tribulations, even the guys who ended up declaring early for the draft, the Miles Sanders, uh, the Ryan Bates, Connor McGoverns, those dudes, I, I feel for Trace more for everyone else because I he gave everything he had to this program, and it just wasn't meant to be. And like you said, Matt, it was just a microcosm of this season uh, that for Trace McSorley, the opportunity was there, and for some reason, they just weren't able to take it. Yeah, and I think it's, um, it reminds me in a, a little bit, and it's, you know, I actually went on back and pulled up his stats, but it reminds me sort of how Tim Tebow went out at Florida with kind of an, an underwhelming season after um, how great they were his, his two years as a starter before that. Um, I've got his number. He, he threw for nine fewer touchdowns, but his, his numbers were up. But Florida, I think, was what, nine and three? I or think nine they went and four. nine and four, yeah. Um, they, they beat Penn State in that, that Outback Bowl game where Matt McGloin just threw another interception, actually. Um, <laughs> but it's it reminds me a little of that just in that something that was just kind of off all year. And I think part of that is the the change in, in offensive coaching, not just Ricky Ronnie, but you've had David Corley coaching wide receivers. You had Sider coaching running backs. There's just different voices, three new voices, essentially, um, running the offense. And, well, and Tyler Bowen. Oh, I, you know, not e easy to forget him too. When who, he actually did an outstanding job with yeah. the tight ends. So oddly, like, oddly enough, the, like the position coach who you can argue probably had the best year, other than maybe Ju him and Jawan Sider, like one two. He's the guy that everyone forgets about in this. Uh, 
exactly yeah um and a huge factor on the recruiting trail too if i can sneak that in there but it just felt like nothing it wasn't an all-out disaster on offense all year but it was just a, a hair off in one whether it was drops whether it was missed blocks whether it was poor blocking by receivers there was always just that one thing and it varied from week to week that kept them from taking that next step. And you heard the players talk a lot about it. And even in the coaching staff throughout the, they, they felt like they were close all year. And for whatever reason, they just never put it all together consistently. Um, yeah. I had hopes out of the Maryland game where they, they really probably played their most complete game of the year um, to, to wrap up the regular season that that would carry over into bowl prep and the game and everything. And guys get a chance to get healthy and it just, as, as we've said a few times now, it just wasn't meant to be. It was was more of the same. And like you said, Bill, it was a big disappointment to see a guy like Trace McSorley go out without that that tenth win, without that that signature win, um, that that big monster year. I mean, we were I had him pop up in my my Facebook lookbacks and time hops and everything in the last couple of days. The stuff we wrote just about a year ago now about. Trace being a legitimate Heisman candidate, and he was going into the year, and you can go back to the App State game, and everything was just kind of a bit off um, from from the first snap of the year to to the last one. And um, you factor in the injury, you know, we know about the the knee injury that he suffered um, against Iowa. Um, there's been some speculation that maybe he got dinged up in the Ohio State game um, with a shoulder or something. Obviously, we'll never know the truth on that. Um, but just it's it's disappointing in the the immediate aftermath to see a guy that literally rewrote the record book at quarterback for Penn State go out with with not only a loss but kind of a season that was was not up to what what all of us expected going in. Um, but on the other hand, I, looking at more of the long term long view of this, what he along with guys like Saquon Barkley and Miles Sanders and um, you know, Amani Oruwarie and, um, you know, Nick Scott and, and these guys that have been around for a number of years, the work that they've put in certainly got Penn state to where they have been the last three years with the 30 or 31 total wins, uh, the Rose bowl birth, the big 10 championship, the Fiesta bowl. Um, but all those guys and the guys that have, have graduated in the last two years are a huge part of the next step that I think all of us expect Penn state to take going into next season and the you know seasons to come, they've made this a program once again where the best players in the country are are not only just looking at Penn State but but opting to come here. And we'll get into that obviously when we talk about recruiting a little bit. For sure. And uh just one last thing uh for the record. Uh offensive S P plus this year uh was actually thirty eighth, which was better than I like anticipated. I thought it would be a bit worse than that. Uh, that was carried mostly by the running game, though, 17th in rushing S&P Plus, 64th in passing S&P Plus. Uh, and then just one last thing, the Kentucky game, Penn State's excuse me, uh, post-game win expectancy was 75%. Adjusted scoring margin was about 6.5 points. So uh, just to twist the knife a little bit more because God Special teams. Special team. Penn State was 77th in uh, special teams S&P Plus. Uh, 90s, and that's a huge improvement yeah. from where they were probably through two, two years ago. eight or nine games. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, 92nd in field goal kicking, 49th in punt efficiency, 73rd in kickoff efficiency, uh, 44th in punt return efficiency, and 42nd in kickoff return efficiency. Um, sure. Uh, let's go just kind of the season on the whole, the big takeaways. Um, I think uh, – you kind of hit the nail on the head, and I think most people listening are probably nodding along when we talk about how the offense just looked a little bit off this year. Um, it, it was unfortunate how Trace McSorley's final year went uh, through the air, um, both with him being a little off uh, and with the receiving core just... Uh, not living up to kind of what I think everyone's expectation was uh, going into what it was capable of doing. Because there was what I would argue it is cap- was capable of doing so much more than it did. Um, and they just did not uh, get that job done. Um, but really the strength of this team was running the ball. Miles Sanders, 
would really good uh, replacing Saquon Barkley. Uh, Trace was great on the ground. Ricky Slade, uh, when he wasn't putting the ball in the deck, which was a bit of a problem with him, uh, was pretty good as a running back. Uh, my big takeaway with the offense, Matt, is that it probably wasn't as bad as we thought it was. Like, as we look back and we see that it scored, you know, in the second half after the bye, 21, 33, 37, 22, 20, 38, and 24 points. It probably wasn't as bad as uh, that number would indicate, but it still felt like the offense just did not live up to the expectations that most of us had coming into the year. No, and I think part of that is is on us to some degree. Um, we talked about this probably back, you know, in the two thirds or three quarters of the way through the year, and Penn State lost Saquon Barkley, they lost Deshaun Hamilton, they lost Mike Gesicki off of historically great offenses, and. I think it was a little foolish probably on on our part and others to expect them not to miss a beat or to not miss as big a beat as they did. Um, that's that's your all-time leading pass catcher in terms of receptions. That's arguably the most productive tight end in the history of the program, if not the most productive, one of the most. And the best, not even running back, the best player in the history of the program, all going off your offense, not to mention the coaching changeover that we've talked about. And that's a big whole leadership production knowledge base to replace. And I th- you, you saw the result of it is, you know, the inconsistency relying on guys that were either inexperienced or not, not the type of guys that you expect to be, you know, the, the go-to guy like a Gasicki or a Hamilton was. Um, I told someone just a couple of days ago that, you know, and we, we've heard a lot of this, and I think we all kind of expected it that you know, Miles Sanders had, by by production, had a more productive year running the football than Saquon Barkley did last year. Um, obviously, you don't have the the receiving yards in that, but I think, in that that level specifically in the running game, I think we got a little bit spoiled with just how great Barkley was. I think we probably got a little spoiled, if you want to think of it that way, with just how good the offense was, and. Um, they should have been more productive than they were, but I don't know if they should have been as good as maybe we, we had talked about going into the year. Um, I'm really intrigued. Um, I'm going to get ahead of myself a little bit here with some of the 2019 stuff we're going to talk about. Um, you have a number of guys that got snaps that um, I think are the type of personality that the type of talent that can become leaders. I think Hamler is a guy that has, has the potential to do that. I think the on defense, Michael Parsons can do that. I think there's, there's a silver lining as I see it in the amount of experience they were able to get guys that will be back for the next couple of years on both sides of the ball. Um, I'm kind of bouncing around here a little bit, but um, I'm really curious to see how if this year of, of learning in a sense for not just players but coaches how that translates in the next year i'm really curious to see kind of what this this version three in a sense of penn state with james franklin in charge because the the names that we've we've relied on the, the trace mcsorley's the sharif miller's the you know Miles Sanders, these guys that kind of were this, this second iteration of, of Penn State under James Franklin are now gone. And this feels more and more like 100% his program as far as the guys that are there and the coaches that are there and what he wants to do and how he wants to do it. Um, this, in a sense, was kind of a transition year despite having all that experience back. And it's kind of kind of interesting, I guess, in my mind to, to see how that, that goes going forward. Yeah, I, it's... It's something that it, it it causes uncertainty heading into 19, and it can cause optimism or pessimism depending on how you want to look at it. We'll get to that in a second. Uh, but the last kind of big takeaway that I had this season uh, on the other side of the football on defense is that, um, oh my God, Brent Pry is good at his job. 
Um, I know that Penn State had the rough, you know, it had that meltdown against Appalachian State. Uh, it struggled to stop a screen pass against Ohio State. And, you know, it allowed 42 points against Michigan, although I still contend that it wasn't that bad. But that dude is a, he's money. I mean, the oh, Penn it's, State. It's. It's unbelievable how underappreciated he is. It's the def- I'd say I'd argue the defense and co- defensive coaching staff in general. Uh, him, Sean Spencer is uh, like I don't know what he like feeds his defensive linemen, but it obviously works. Uh, Tim Banks has done a good enough job with safeties. I mean, I I think it was a bit handcuffed this year by you know this weird mix of guys who were too young to contribute and, you know, a guy in Nick Scott, who's not naturally a safety having to be one of your starters back there. And I still think, you know, Garrett Taylor looks like he's going to be really, really, really good. Then you have Terry Smith at cornerback and Penn state's cornerbacks are a very solid pat, uh, you know, uh, unit when it comes to stopping people for catching passes. So I think like in general, this defensive staff, Penn State was eighth in defensive S and P plus, forty uh, third in defensive rushing S and P plus, and sixteenth in defensive passing S and P plus. For how up and down the offense was, and for how not good special teams were, Penn State's defense really was money this year, and it kept it kept a few of these uh, games from looking a little bit worse than they probably could have been. Yeah, I think I mentioned this to you at one point, probably in like early November when the defense really felt like they, they had found their stride that if, if you could keep the, the September offense and replace the September defense with the November defense, does that Ohio state game end differently? Cause it felt like kind of starting with the Michigan state game and going forward from there, they kind of, they figured some stuff out um, all over the defensive side of the ball. And you just, you just wonder if, that experience, you know, plugged into that that game two months earlier. What kind of difference would that have made? And then, you know, if you really want to to, to twist the knife in your own leg, think about what you know if they win that game, what it does to the rest of the year. Because confidence in college kids is is a wonderful elixir. Yeah, and I, I think now that we've uh, we opened reopened that one momentarily, I think let's look ahead. Uh, we're going to do. We'll just do one and one so we don't, you know, basically go through the entire team here. Your biggest reason for optimism heading into 2019, Matt, and your biggest reason for pessimism, and you can go in whatever order you want on those. Well, I think the, my, I'm an optimistic person by nature and it drives you nuts, I know, Bill. But I think the biggest reason for me is just, this team, and we're going to keep saying this for the next couple of years still, is going to be the most talented team on paper that Penn State's fielded. Um, they certainly have big questions in, in some key spots, but it's hard to look down the roster and the depth chart and who's back and who they're adding and not get excited because of guys like Justin Shorter and Jahan Dotson and Micah Parsons and Brandon Smith and Lance Dixon and uh, Tariq Castro-Fields and whoever else I'm, I'm forgetting. I'm just, you know, going off the top of my head here, there are so many really good, talented players that are only going to be getting better, you would suspect, and they've they've added experience to that talent now in, in pretty much all of those cases. And Penn State's a program at the point now where, where 9-4 and four is a disappointment. When I was a student, 9-4 and four was the best year we had. So the bar has been raised along with this talent level. And so I think the, the optimist in me says, you know, they've got the talent to, and they really, they, for all year, they, they had, they competed with everyone except Michigan. They were lost three games by eight points and, you know, a play here or there, they're, they're 11 and one instead of nine and three. And they're going to, you know, the Fiesta Bowl again or the Rose Bowl or who knows where, um, and a lot of those guys are back. The biggest reason for pessimism is the guys they lose. Um, obviously, McSorley is you know a podcast onto itself, but specifically at at defensive tackle, where they finally figured some stuff out late in the year with Windsor and Givens inside. Now you lose Givens um, to to the NFL, and 
there's a big question mark there now. You still have Robert Windsor, who, um, as long as he keeps his nose clean, um, is going to be a three-year starter coming back next year, a fifth-year senior. That's that's always a big thing I look for on on the both lines is just, experience and, and age. And just so we can be on the record, no, we do not know what Robert Windsor got suspended for, so don't take that as it was a drug suspension. That was just a turn of phrase. I feel like our legal team would have appreciated me saying that, so I said it. I'm not nearly clever enough to actually turn that phrase intentionally right, to imply right. that, so... <laughs> That's why I'm here. I, I see the error of my ways now, but um, they're going to have to rely a lot on the interior line with true sophomore PJ Mustafer, redshirt junior, I believe, Antonio Shelton, Fred Hansard coming back from injury. Maybe Ellison Jordan can stay healthy. Um, Aeneas Hawkins will be a redshirt freshman. Uh, who am I forgetting Culpepper, here, Bill? Judge um, Culpepper and Judge uh, Culpepper Barber. will be a redshirt freshman. They've got bodies. They've got guys that are excited about there, but that's a spot, and we saw it in the national championship game, where if you are really good there, you can do a lot of things defensively. If you're not, then a lot of things are going to happen to you. And this is, it's a monster offseason for primarily P.J. Mustafer because he's probably the incumbent there. And he's going to get a lot of run with, with Hansard recovering from his late-season injury. Um, Ellison Jordan continuing to, to try and you know, get himself right physically. Um, there's going to be a lot of snaps available there. Um, but he's the, the key player there. Um, and that's kind of, I guess, symptomatic of, of those key guys they have to replace. I think they're really good in the secondary, despite Oruwari graduating. I think they're going to be perfectly fine at safety, replacing Nick Scott. Um, we all know about the talent at running back. We've got two guys at quarterback that I think most fans would be comfortable with plugging in there in Clifford and, and Stevens. Um, you know, receiver is going to be, um, should figures to be better. It, it better be better. Um, linebacker, you've got a couple guys that we're going to talk about here in a minute coming in. So there's a lot of, a lot of optimistic reasons, but that that interior defensive line was a problem for for a big chunk of the year, and without looking at the schedule, I, that's an area where they're going to need to be ready to go early on next year um, if they they want to get where I think we expect them and 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 they attain to get. Yeah, I mean, for me, my big source of optimism, kind of going off of what you just said, is that like. You look at this Penn State team, you look at how, one, how much it has coming back. Uh, offense, it replaces DeAndre Tompkins, which, you know, he did a lot for the program, but I think that's going to be, uh, whoever steps in there is going to be, I think, a little bit better than he was this season. Uh, losing Trey's hurts, but like you said, there are options there. Losing Miles Sanders hurts, but there are options there. Uh, offensive line is... I'll get to that in a second. Then on the defensive side of the ball, you lose Sharif Miller, which sucks. There are options there. There are guys who have been productive who can step into that role potentially. Uh, you lose Kevin Gibbons, yeah, but we just listed, what, like six or seven guys, and you need one of them to be able to be a competent defensive lineman? Like, I I don't know if I'm co- comfortable with that, but I it, like that. there are reasons for optimism there. You move to linebacker. I mean, Cam Brown's up and down. He is what he is. Jan Johnson is what he is. And there are two really good, talented young guys behind him. Then you're replacing Koa Farmer with Micah Parsons, who might have been the team's best defensive player, not named Yeter Gross Matos by the end of the year. In the secondary, you lose Nick Scott and Amani Oruwarie, but you're replacing them with guys who have played plenty of football. It's going to be potentially John Reed and Tariq Castro Fields, which is a very solid uh, cornerback duo. It's going to be Garrett Taylor, who was very good this year, and possibly Lamont Wade, who is kind of on that Garrett Taylor trajectory of first year, not really great. Second year, you get moved to safety and you learn the position, and potentially your third year, he's talented <laughs> enough to be really good back there. So I look at what this Penn State team has the potential to be next year, and I look at where they're losing guys and how they're going to replace those guys. And I think they're going to be generally fine when you're replacing uh, production with talent. That can get a bit hairy. That's when you get into like the receiving core from this year. But when you're replacing 
a player who wasn't particularly productive with talent, which is the case, at least numbers-wise, with a few guys who are going to be replaced, that's an exciting thing, and that's a reason to be optimistic. Uh, my concern is uh, I, I'm a little bit iffy on the offensive line. Um, there are rumblings that uh, Matt Linegrover's job is being looked at. It's not clear whether or not that means uh, he's going to be out of a job like that or just being you know, put under a microscope. But going into next year, they have to replace the right side of their offensive line. They have to replace Ryan Bates and Connor McGovern, two guys who they weren't always the best players, but when they were on their game, they were able to do some pretty good stuff for this program. And I don't know, I don't know for sure whether, you know, a Des Holmes or an Alex Gellerstead or a CJ Thorpe or whomever gets put into those positions. I mean, they have a lot of bodies on the offensive line, a lot of talented dudes on the offensive line. But, you know, for how excited we are about uh, CJ Thorpe, he played all of his snaps at defensive tackle this year. For how excited we are about Mike Miranda, we don't know quite what he is yet as an offensive lineman. So we've seen how tricky it can be having to break in a new quarterback behind an iffy offensive line and just how tough it can be to operate as a football team behind uh, an iffy offensive line. And that's something that gives me a bit of pause, even if, you know, I think Will Fry, Stephen Gonzalez, and Michael Bennett are three dudes who are going to give you, who are going to be decent at minimum at what they do. So if they can figure that out, I think the offense has the potential to be pretty special next year. If they can't figure that out with a new quarterback, with a new running back, that's where things get a bit iffy for me. Um but on the whole, I am pretty optimistic about uh, 2019. I think the team has the potential to be. I don't know if they're going to be able to win the Big Ten. I don't know if they're going to be able to win the Big Ten East. But I think they're going to be right there in the conversation for it. And I think that if they can, if I remember correctly, their schedule uh, is a little bit tricky, especially towards the end of the year. Give me a sec. I'll pull it up right here. Like, I think there's like a trip to Ohio State at an inopportune time. Uh, yeah, Idaho, Buffalo, Pitt is the non-con. Uh, Mar- at Maryland, Purdue, at Iowa, Michigan, at Michigan State, at Minnesota, Indiana, at Ohio State, Rutgers. There are some kind of weird stretches in there. That stretch from Purdue to at Michigan State is going to be tough. Uh, going to Ohio State in your second to last game of the year has the potential to be tough. So... I think what's interesting, just real briefly on that, is that you've got one, two, three, four, five, six. We'll say we'll call it five games before your your first big challenge, if you want to call at Iowa a big challenge. Um, And um, Kinnick, which will surely be a night game, can can be can be tricky. Um, Purdue is chaos team. I think they replaced Indiana to some degree with their ability to beat Ohio State by 30, and then I think Auburn just scored on them again in the Music City Bowl. <laughs> so they've got, we'll call it five games there, plus a bye week to kind of figure things out with some new faces. Um, they don't have that late September test like they had this year with Ohio State, which you can look at it a, you know, one of a couple ways, I guess. But the schedule starts out favorably, but it gets tough pretty quick. That, la- that last half... You know where you have Michigan, Michigan State, and back-to-back weekends um, that can get hairy quickly. For sure, and if they don't have an offensive line that can keep Tommy Stevens or Sean Clifford upright, that has the potential to get kind of ugly. But we won't look that far ahead, especially because you know we want to talk a little bit of recruiting on this one. Um, this Penn State recruiting class, tenth nationally, second in the Big Ten, uh, behind only. Uh, the folks in Columbus. Oh, no, only behind Michigan. I forgot uh, Ohio State has some iffiness in their class after uh, after Urban Meyer went, you know, went to a nice you know, Ohio State. State's biggest issue is at, in terms of rankings at this point is just numbers. I think they yeah. only have like, they have like 16 dudes. Yeah. I think average rating, they're like maybe they're second good. or third. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So to be fair, Penn State's, yeah. I think, fourth or fifth by average uh, rank. Yeah. They have a relatively small class. Uh, but looking at this class on the whole, Matt, 
what's kind of your big takeaways of uh, what they wanted to do? Were they able and were they able to like accomplish that thing? I think so far I'd give them their 80% of the way there. They did a great job at linebacker uh, with Brandon Smith and Lance Dixon. They did a, a solid job. Um, in the defensive backfield, they've got five defensive backs committed, um, Tyler Rudolph, Keaton Ellis, Marquise Wilson, uh, who am I forgetting here? Uh, Jaquan Brisker and uh, Joey Porter Jr. Who could grow into a, a linebacker here at some point down the road potentially, but they filled a lot of key holes. Um, they've got the two quarterbacks they're excited about. Um, the, the 20% incomplete we'll talk about here in a little bit, but, They've got some some work still to do on the defensive line, primarily defensive tackle. They've got um, a really, really exciting defensive end prospect, Adiza Isaac from Brooklyn, um, who just kept getting better and better as the year went on, um, who's already enrolled um, and has a chance to play early in, in, as a true freshman um, beyond the four games. Um, and they've got Hakeem Bayman, who is ranked as defensive end, but probably is one of those guys that's going to grow into defensive tackle down the road. And that's kind of how they recruited him. Um, but beyond that, they are still in the hunt for probably two true defensive tackles. Um, and maybe another end, depending on kind of how the numbers shake out. Um, maybe another wide receiver. There's, there's a, a couple little cherries on the Sunday outside of the defensive line, but that's, that's really the, probably the, the part that will separate this from being a really good class to, to a great class that, that, that addressed a lot of the needs that the coaching staff sees. Yeah. And as you know, you're looking at this class, I mean, the guys that there are lots of reasons to be excited. I mean, the fact that they have 11 early enrollees and the early enrollees are, you know, they have two linebackers as early enrollees. That's a position where they can use some help. They have, you know, one of their running backs and probably the running back, you know, in Noah Kane, who might be a little more ready to contribute right away, he's getting in here. The quarterbacks are getting in here so they can kind of learn things, you know, as this open competition is coming along. They're getting Anthony Wigan in, which with the loss of Ryan Bates, getting a JUCO defensive lineman in, uh, offensive lineman in, apologies, that's a good thing. That's something that can help them as they're, uh, you know, as they're trying to figure out what all the pieces look like on the offensive line. On the whole, the this class, I mean, you look at some of the guys they got. They didn't have to like reach for anyone, which I know is like a bit of a, I don't want to say mean thing to say, but the worst prospect in this class by 24 seven rating is Jaquan Brisker, who is, you know, a junior college safety who I believe racked up a fair number of accolades for what he did at Lackawanna. And then after him, it's Brenton Strange, who is, you know, the number 355 prospect nationally. It's been a really relatively small class, but they're getting talent in. There's talent all over the place. And it's another one of those things that raises the floor on where Penn State is going to be. And with raising the floor, it's also pushing the potential ceiling a little bit higher, which is something that I think is really big for the program as it's, you know, to quote James Franklin after the Ohio State game, trying to go from great to elite. You need difference makers all over the field and whether it's a guy like a Brandon Smith or whether it's one of the you know really talented skill position guys they got in or whether it's some you know whomever it is they're getting the guys they want they think have the potential to get them again raise the floor raise the ceiling get them from great to elite uh Matt I want to ask you just kind of a general thing. Who is your favorite prospect in this? I, I think I know the answer, but who is your favorite prospect in this class? Well, I've been talking about him for, what, the six months he's been committed now. Um, it's Lance Dixon. And there's there's two reasons. One one is very stupid on my part. It's because he went to high school about 20 minutes from where I'm sitting right now in West Bloomfield. He went to high school in West Bloomfield, Michigan. I'm about 20 minutes away from there. Um, so that's that's cool. You know, a suburban Detroit kid. Um, that I wish I had taken the chance to go see play in high school because his high school tape is insane. But that is the primary reason I'm I'm excited about him. I think he, Brandon Smith is is the complete package. He is a frightening human being to even look at. If you look at some of his photos from the uh, the Under Armour game, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, from last week, 
Um, and he's, you know, just looks the part of freak middle linebacker, terrifying, don't get in his way kind of way. Um, but Lance Dixon's athleticism, he's relatively new to, to linebacker. He's played a little bit more as a safety, um, was really effective on offense um, this year in high school as well. But his athleticism is just the sky's the limit for him as a linebacker. As he gets his feet under him, learns the position, gets a little bit bigger. Um, I think, I think he even touched on this a little bit after he, he signed and he's actually enrolled now he's on campus as of, as of Monday. Um, but he talked about how they envision him at least early on as maybe a third down pass rushing specialist that can see his role grow from there, depending on, on how quickly he, he picks things up and, and shows he's ready. Um, but I'm not sure he has the highest ceiling in the class, but it's, it's really high if he puts it all together. And it's, I don't think Penn state's really had a, a linebacker like that. Um, Micah Parsons has that kind of potential. Um, in a different way. Um, Parsons is just, just a, a freak in, in every sense of the way. Dixon's not, doesn't have that size. Doesn't have that, that probably doesn't have that overall speed, but it's that kind of overall athleticism that, he can bring to that position that Penn state really hasn't seen since maybe Navarro Bowman. Um, and not to say he's going to be that, but he's, he's that kind of athlete, the linebacker position, which is, is really exciting. If you like watching guys fly around like missiles, um, tackling people really aggressively and, and making plays. Yeah. I mean, he's, uh, he's a guy who, like you said, when you watch his tape, I mean, it's like, he's playing a different game from everyone else. And it's, Really fun and really exciting to watch. For me, the guy in this class that I like the most is Noah Kane. Um, I love this dude. I love watching his film. I loved uh, his commitment video where he basically talked about like he starts out every day with a run and then he goes to the gym and if he didn't sweat, it wasn't a good workout. Like you just need guys who are sometimes wired like that, those hyper competitive dudes who are going to be able to step in and really try and impose themselves on the game. Like he is going to go into every game thinking he's the best player on the field, which is a mentality you want out of guys like that. It's something that, you know, if it goes awry, it could be a little tough, but when he is, I think as he gets here and he is matures and gets locked in, he has the potential to be a really special dude. And he also has this potential to be a really unique dude in that when you look at who Penn state has at running back, it's Journey Brown, who not the most physical runner. He's a really fast dude. Ricky Slade, kind of like that more scat back type. He's really quick, really fast. He can probably run it between the tackles, but he can't really punish defensive lot, you know, linebackers who try to arm tackle him. You'll get Devin Ford, really talented dude, also a bit of an athlete. They don't have that bruising running back that You know, I'm not going to compare him to Andre Robinson, but like when Andre Robinson was coming in, everyone said, oh, Saquon Barkley is going to be the big play guy. Andre Robinson is going to be the guy that grinds out yards. I think Noah Kane, they have this like core of really talented, really athletic, really quick and fast and shifty running backs. Noah Kane's the bruiser. Noah Kane's the guy they're going to give the ball to on third down and two and say, Noah, we need you to rumble through there and get two yards, and he's going to do it. And I just love that type of running back, and I love the competitiveness that he brings to the program. Also, uh, just in like an honorable mention, uh, I love Michael Johnson Jr. I think just watching him play, he's a guy who, you know, you, you've said this in the pod a few times, Matt, about Taquan Roberson. He has that kind of Trace McSorley game where it's – you know, he doesn't have the big arm that's going to wow you. He's going to make plays. He's going to do stuff. Michael Johnson has the, tra- I think, has the Trace McSorley make plays gene, but also has the big arm. And I think if he's able to put it together, he has the potential to be a really, really, really special uh, quarterback. I think he ha- might have a relatively low floor, but he has as high of a ceiling as Penn State has had in a quarterback prospected uh, several years and i'm i'm really excited to see what he eventually turns into because you know oh for sure he's um so i didn't mean to interrupt you there but uh, oh yeah i was uh, just saying like we know what the quarterback picture is for the next year next two years but once the uh tommy stevens and sean clifford era ends 
I think for how much of a freak Will Levis is, I think if Michael Johnson Jr. puts it all together, there's no, there is no keeping him off the field. Oh, no, I think we've probably mentioned this with him. that He's he's right now an athlete playing quarterback in the truest sense. He he has the arm. He has the strength to, to throw the ball, to make all the throws. He, he just he needs to learn the position. He needs to, to become a better thrower at this point. But like you said, if he puts it all together, it's the potential is scary. That's the question is whether it happens. And, and real quick on Noah Kane, um, one of the traits I think will help him get on the field aside from being being here early like you mentioned he's, he's different than what Penn State has he's also the type of runner he is is not the it's not the kind of thing that takes an adjustment to the speed of the college mm-hmm. game as much he's I've seen him described in a few places as a one-cut guy he gets the ball sees the hole makes his cut and goes he's not gonna dance he's not gonna necessarily look for the big play on every time he touches the ball but he's going to be very decisive with. That's the kind of trait that I think helps a freshman, and I think it also helps an offensive line. Um, you know, you aren't you if you execute your blocks, he's going to find that hole and he's going to he's going to hit it hard and he's going to get what the what the play is set up to get. And if you know someone makes a mistake or he can break a tackle, then he he can certainly make a big play out of it. And the the one other thing with Kane that I love, and you touched on it, Bill, is his confidence and. I'm not sure Penn State has enough of those guys. Um, I think they had some of those guys. You know, Jason Cabinda strikes me as that kind of guy. Um, but one of the things that really I felt was missing through this year, this season, was the that leader that was going to um, not necessarily the step-up-and-make-plays type guy like Trace McSorley is, but the guy that's going to get in your face and, and just kind of pull everyone up with them. And I think there's a level of confidence you need to be able to do that, especially with as young as Penn State is in a lot of ways. And and Kane just oozes that. He 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 like you said, thinks he's the best player on the field whenever he he steps on it. And I think that's a that's a big trait that that you need. I, I'm a, a hockey writer I follow says you need enough guys who winning hockey games is the most important thing in their life outside of their family. And I think that's true for any sport. You need guys that winning games is the most important thing that they, that they want to do. Um, and that kind of attitude is you need to kind of permeate the rest of the roster. And Kane's Kane's certainly a guy that, that looks the part at this mm-hmm. point. Yeah. I is a bit of an aside. Uh, and I'm going to tell this anecdote just because Matt's a Browns fan. There was a, uh, there was a podcast that I listened to, uh, before the NFL season where they were talking about the Browns and they said that they identified Jarvis Landry as this kind of guy, this guy who he's not the best player on the field and he may or may not know this, but he is going to fight. So he is on that level as the best player on the field at all times. And it's all about hat raising the floor and having those guys who are going to Fight and I mean, what do they always say in this word? Compete every day and in everything that you do. And I think Noah Kane is that kind of guy, and that's why I'm so excited about him. Uh, but this class is hopefully not uh, not filled yet, Matt. Uh, going down the list of guys, um, Penn State still has a few dudes on its board. Uh, like you mentioned, defensive lines the big one. But there are some other positions where it looks like Penn State could potentially make a move on a few dudes. Uh, if you would just like to go down the list a little bit, uh, you know, don't give don't give away the stuff that's behind the message boards, but the stuff that you know. Um, I'll, I'll start with a name that everyone knows and we've been talking about for months now. And that's Jared Harrison Hunt from uh, New York City. Um, probably their top defensive tackle target at this point, just based on how long they've been on them. Really raw kid, but you know, oozes potential. Um, it's not a great year in terms of star rankings for elite defensive tackle talent in, in Penn state's traditional recruiting area. Um, there really weren't a ton of those guys in general in this class just was, you know, one of those years where the, the talent was, was elsewhere position wise. Um, but he's a guy that's probably down to Penn State and Miami. Alabama sniffing around, LSU sniffing around. Doesn't talk a lot. His high school coach does a lot. Most of the interviews. Um, 
I have no idea what to expect. I my crystal ball on two four seven right now is on Penn State, but that's literally just a guess. I I don't think he knows where he's going, so it's hard to for me the the guy who watches what the teams are going to do to say what he's going to decide. So um, that's one to keep an eye on. Um, switching sides to the other side of the ball, real briefly. Doug Nestor is a guy we talked about last month. Um, currently committed to Ohio State as an offensive guard. Um, he visited right before the dead period last month. They expect him back on an official visit sometime this month. Um, right before we, we started recording, I told Bill that I, th- I think he's a guy that I feel just ends up at Penn State. I'm not, not going to say yet that he will, but it just kind of feels that way um, at this point. But quite a bit can change here in the next you know three or four weeks before he signs. Um, going back to defensive tackle here, which, like I said, is kind of the the, the focus to wrap up the class. Um, Jaquaz Sorrells from Florida is a guy that they're trying to get up for an official visit this month. We'll see if that happens. Um, Devon Ellis from Maryland is one of those guys that's really shot up the rankings in the last um, probably month, month and a half now. Uh, defensive tackle prospect. Um, there is some speculation that he might have already signed with the program but is waiting to announce it until the Polynesian Bowl later this month out in Hawaii. Um, so that's something to keep an eye on. I believe that game is um, a week from Saturday the 19th. Um, I think everyone is pretty confident where Penn State sits with him. That would be a really, really solid pickup. Um, there's another defensive end, Smith Vilbert, which is two last names, I believe, from New Jersey. That's another one of those fe- uh, quickly rising guys late this uh uh, in 2018, going into the the final push here to Just, signing uh, day, he's one of those guys who uh, kind of like Jason Owe played basketball his entire life and just recently took to football. Is that correct? I believe so. Yeah, I don't want to say with 100 percent certainty because I don't know anything for 100. percent But um, he's a guy that again, Penn State feels pretty confident on. They had him on campus last month, I believe. He he took his official visit um, that big weekend with the rest of the 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 class or most of the rest of the class um so he's the guy that i would expect probably to end up in this class here when it wraps up and then um they just offered this uh young man today joseph apia darkwa who is from dusseldorf that is germany um he is the prototypical low low floor high high ceiling kind of player i i know nothing about him other than he's german and he just got an offer from Penn State today, and I think they would like to get him up for an official visit, but that is about it. Looking very briefly here, he has offers from UCLA, Virginia, Georgia Tech, and Rutgers, so so Penn State is not, not the first to see him, but um, a guy that they would like to to um, potentially add, depending, probably depending on how things play out with like a Harrison Hunt um, primarily going forward. Um, they're looking at a couple receivers, um, one name, Demarion Houston, out of Oklahoma City, who I believe was a one-time Oklahoma commit, um, is a guy they've offered. There's a lot of uh, Texas. He was a Texas commit. So um, there's a couple other guys they've offered. No one that really jumps out as going to visit or is is a, a, a higher priority than the others. There's a um, kid out of Florida whose name I'm, I'm blanking on and is not popping up on the 247 cheat sheet. So... Um, like I said a couple of times, defensive tackle is really going to be the focus um, over these next three weeks when the dead period lifts um, tomorrow night or Friday night um, into Saturday, I believe, is when coaches can start making visits again and players can start visiting campus again. Um, so, you know, keep your eye on that. And I think um, there's there's Mark Anthony Thomas, um, Mark, Anthony, Mark Anthony Richards um, down in Florida, who's a guy they're looking at probably – going to end up elsewhere at this point um, as a running back. Um, Penn State was looking at him as more of an athlete with two backs in the class. He's probably more defensive back now. Um, Darnell Wright, the five-star offensive tackle in West Virginia, um, probably going to end up at Alabama or Tennessee. Um, But he's a guy that um, they're certainly going to keep pushing on and and see if they can at least get him on campus and see where it goes from there. so all in all, like I said earlier, it's it's a, a really solid class with a couple holes to fill. And I think just based on general gut feeling and where they stand with some of those guys I just mentioned, they're going to finish pretty strong. I think Harrison Hunt is probably the the difference between them being really, really pleased with where they end up and you know maybe feeling like they are you know just a half step 
below where they, they wanted to be at defensive tackle. Um, but there, there are certainly options out there and it's the, the kind of guys that are out there in general at that position in this class that, um, that are, are available are the guys that you're going to have to get, get on board and then, and then wait a couple years to, to really see what you've got with them just because there, there's not the, the Christian Wilkins or the, you know, that's the name that all of us remember as Penn State fans, but there's not that obvious big name guy that you plug in and is, you know, a, a three or four year starter starting as a true freshman. Yeah. And it's, you know, I, we're, it's kind of at the point where they have, you know, a month to wrap this up and there are plenty of reasons to believe they'll be able to do that. So hopefully they're able to get the job done. Uh, hopefully they're able to finish this class out strong and hopefully uh, the dudes who are, who get picked up in this last little stretch of guys who end up really making their impact over the next couple of years. Uh, but still got a long way to go on that. Uh, and that's it for this edition of the podcast, I think. I can't think of anything else we need to talk about, Matt. No, I think that the quicker we can move on from, from 2018 Penn State football, the the better it is for all of us in psychologically and yeah. emotionally. Yeah, for sure. And we And besides, we can always turn our attention to things like Penn State basketball to take the edge off. So... Uh, yeah, thank you for listening to this edition of the podcast. Uh, as always, make sure uh, you subscribe to us on our various podcast channels where you can find us. Head on to iTunes, uh, subscribe, leave us, uh, leave us a good five-star review. We'd really appreciate that. Keep making sure you're following us on all our social media channels, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Make sure you're buying shirts. Uh, I don't think we're doing any special shirt things coming up, so what you see is what you get. And you will love them because they are nice shirts. Uh, and yeah, keep reading the site, keep supporting the site, and as always, thank you for listening to Royal Lions Radio. For my co-host Matt DeBear, I'm Bill DeFilippo. Take care, everyone.